Good afternoon, everyone. Looks like we have a good crowd, but perhaps Mr. Uh, Ames mentioned the fact we're down to down in attendance. I hope we don't have 20 people over at the other hall wondering where we fled to. They may think it's the flight to the place of safety, and uh, I kind of wish we'd had someone over there to warn them. I didn't uh, get that done in time, I guess, but next time we'll have to do that and be sure we have some young man over there so that they can not feel the church just disappeared. <laughs> they, don't, they may think we fled to safety. I want to welcome everyone here, especially you new brethren. I met a brand new lady here who had just attended one time, and I guess that was back in Ohio. And uh, so other new people are attending as well, and certainly welcome you to our services. And I hope you'll get used to our whole uh, way of life, our order of services, and the things we're involved in here. You'll notice our hymnal is different from the Protestant hymnals. I grew up for 19 years in the Methodist Church, and most of our hymns are not the old uh, Protestant hymns. They're written by Mr. Herbert Armstrong's brother, Dwight, but they're all actually based upon the Bible and paraphrasing the Bible. And the Psalms, as some of you know, were written to be song, sung. In fact, psalm means psalm, a song, and so we sing them in church and hope you all get used to them. Uh, I think Mr. Ames again may have mentioned, uh, I didn't get to hear the announcements, but uh, our trips, a lot of us are going out uh, various places for the Passover. My wife and I are leaving Thursday morning, so we'd appreciate your prayers. We're leaving Thursday morning for Los Angeles, and I'll be preaching in Los Angeles uh, on the Sabbath and uh, giving a campaign there and then conducting the Passover and then uh, I'll be having some meetings and so on with other people that are in the church. And then down in, in San Diego on the last holy day. So we appreciate your prayers for the trips there. And Mr. and Mrs. Ames, he probably mentioned that, are going out to San Francisco area and Seattle. And Seattle, I should say. And I know that others are going out. So pray for everyone. In case some of us forget, be sure to pray for Mario Hernandez, or the director of our Spanish work. He's down, and it was, uh, Debbie mentioned, he's in Buenos Aires, or was the other day. And I get more sentimental about Mario when he's not here. Uh, when he's here, I take him for granted like we do each other, but he was always gone so long, and he's out there, and we're, we're here. But uh, he certainly does a wonderful work traveling all over Central and South America all alone, and be sure you pray for him and for all of God's ministers that are traveling. Well, brethren, we do have a growing work, and we're very grateful for the impact of the work. It is growing on a consistent basis, and we are very thankful to God for that. And now Passover is coming, as we've been talking about, and we all need to examine ourselves. And I know you know that. A lot of you have been doing it. I preached on Christ and on the meaning of the Passover just a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go over that same material again, but I didn't want to get off on prophecy or some other thing just before Passover. There's a certain aspect of our Christian lives I think we should think about and examine before the Passover. But first, let's turn to 2 Corinthians, and that may have been covered before in some of these pre-Passover sermons. But we often turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul was inspired to write, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So if Christ is not in you, then you are disqualified. 
I think most of us know that the world talks about Christ and accepting Christ or inviting Christ into your life, but unless He really is living in you, then you are not, of course, going to make it into God's kingdom. True Christianity is not just believing in Christ. Satan believes in Christ. He was there when Christ died. He saw Christ resurrected. He knows that in one way better than most people do because he, he was there. But that doesn't make him a Christian. You have to obey Christ, and you have to have Christ living his life within you to be a genuine Christian. And that's the important thing we all need to understand. And we ought to think in every way that we can before the Passover, is Christ really, I mean really, living in you? Is Christ really living in me? And that's very important. I have to ask myself that question, and I hope all of us do that nearly every day. Turn with me would now, if you would, back to uh, John, the Gospel of John, and back to chapter 6. John chapter 6, brethren, and turn with me there at this time. And I'm going to break into this wonderful long section about Christ being the bread of life. He said in verse 51, John 6, verse 51, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Christ is not the manna which ancient Israel ate and are dead. It is a living bread, something that keeps on feeding us, strengthening us, guiding us. He said, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, of course they were thinking, is he talking about cannibalism and so on? And they didn't understand the spiritual part of it at all. Jesus said, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Here was a young 31 or 2 year old man, as some of them looked at him, he's just a young fellow. And they must have sensed that this was, obviously, he was very different from any other young 31-year-old man they'd ever heard of before. He was just 31 or 32 years old, probably, when he said this. And he looked young, and yet there's something profound constantly coming out of his mouth, and they couldn't understand it because they were carnal. But he explains it as it goes along, and we do need to think about it very, very profoundly. So unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood literally drinking in every aspect of Christ that you possibly can, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Does that mean you're already immortal? No. Read the rest of the sentence. And I will raise him up at the last day. So he can die, but during this life, as we know, the Holy Spirit is in him, and that is Christ living in him. So he does have eternal life in him during this life because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in him. That is eternal life. But he will die and be raised up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. If you really eat and drink of Christ and think, how can I study this book? How can I meditate carefully and just read it over and over, turn it over in my mind and ask God even as I read, Father, help me understand, help me to grasp all the implications of this. How can I better reflect Jesus Christ 
in everything I think and say and do, then we will all be more like Christ. I preached a sermon a few years ago, and I need to repeat it again in various ways, brethren. We are the church of the forgiven. I make hundreds of mistakes. I make probably thousands of mistakes throughout my life. And so do you. We're human. We don't, we're not perfect. But we've got to think about this concept. How can I better reflect Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ of the Bible, in everything I think and say and do, and not imagine? Uh, the Protestant world has, imagines Christ as a sort of a soft, effeminate young man. And of course, when they picture him hanging on the cross, he had a little tiny streak of blood going down his forehead or his chest, and that's all. They don't picture him literally with skin hanging off his face and his body from that horrible scourging. They don't understand that. They have him look weak and sickly like he'd never done any work, where Christ was a carpenter and stonemason. And the commentaries tell us that in that part of the world, they built more with stone than they did with uh, uh, lumber. So he was constantly living heavy stones. He must have been rippling with muscles. And even after he was in the ministry, he was very vigorous, no doubt. He walked. He said, Jesus walked in Galilee. Jesus walked here and walked there. He didn't have to join the gym. He walked miles and miles nearly every day. And he probably was helping them lift themselves in and out of the big fishing boats and go here and there and up and down the hill. And he certainly did his full part in setting up the camp and taking down the camp and, so to speak, where they were living. If you read the Bible carefully, you can see Christ was that kind of man. He might have done some push-ups or stretches beside that too. I don't think he had to, but he certainly would have been wrong if he did. He was strong. And when he grabbed those tables, you could picture it being so nice as the Protestants do and nicey-nice. But when Peter got out of line, he says, Get behind me, Satan! Wow! That was right after he told Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the Catholics think that meant Peter was the great perfect pope, you know. No, he wasn't. He said, get behind me, Satan, speaking to Peter later on in that same chapter, Matthew 16. And then when he drove the Jews out of the temple, when they were buying and selling and make the temple of God God's house, a house of merchandise, he said, get these things out of here. And he grabbed this like I grabbed this desk and turn it over and throw things. And you think Meredith has gone wild. We're going to have to call the men in white. <laughs> now, they didn't try to do that to Jesus. I think there were two or three things that stopped them. It was overall God's presence there. But I think even humanly, they sensed that he was a powerfully built young man rippling with muscles and that he had a sense of authority and they'd heard about some of his miracles, and they were kind of in awe. They didn't bother him. They outnumbered him by far. But he was ripping over their tables, and coins and money was flying everywhere. You get these things out of here, he said. He was not nicey-nice. He cracked down on sin. He corrected the sinners powerfully. And yet he did it in wisdom, which we don't always do, and he did it in perfect love, which we don't always do. So we have to think about it. What was the true Christ and how can we represent him in the right way and try to have him living in us because we feed on Christ. We study these words that reflect everything that is Christ. This book, the Bible, is the revelation of Almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And Christ is the word, the Logos. He's the one that directly inspired the Bible, all of it. And so this is Christ in print. 
There, Christ was in the flesh with them, but this is Jesus Christ in print. This is the Word, and that's what we drink in of, and then we've got to meditate on it, think about it, think about it, get down on both knees and pray about it, and say, Father, help me feed on Christ. Help me really understand this, and please give me your Holy Spirit, because I can't live this way without the Holy Spirit. Give me your Holy Spirit so I can actually do these things and think this way and have the right attitude as I do these things. He says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's the very Spirit of God, eternal life in you. He says, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, notice this, abides in me and I in him. And most of all, you know, that's the key. That goes right back to my favorite scripture, Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm not dead physically, but Christ lives in me. That's the key. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not just faith in, it is in the genitive form, the possessive form, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are only three places where it says that, the faith of Christ. One is in Galatians 2.20, the other is in Galatians 2, verse 16, and the other is back in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. This is, uh, however, that's where the true saints uh, are the ones who have the faith of Christ and the testimony of, of, uh, of Jesus. So anyway, that's where it, list, it mentions uh, that it's the faith of Christ. So he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I, see, I live in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So he who feeds on me were to feed on this word. I really meant to say at the beginning, but I really deeply appreciated Mr. Lindley's beautiful song, I'll Walk With God. And I've mentioned before, that's one of my favorite uh, songs in all the world. And I really always enjoyed that song so much. It was a sort of a concept that hit me. I was taking Garner Ted Armstrong on a baptizing tour. Actually, I was, yes, I was taking him. The four years I was in college, he was in the Navy. So I was ahead of him in those ways. And then he came along and became a powerful speaker. But on that tour, that's the only tour we ever went to a movie on. All summer long, 1951 and 52 and 53, I was on baptizing tours. In 55, I took Dick Armstrong on a tour for about three weeks, going back to New York from L.A., driving and zigzagging. And then later on that summer, I took Ted on a tour down in East Texas and Louisiana. Being an Armstrong, he talked me, he twisted my arm, and he talked me into going into this one movie. We'd never gone on a movie before on a baptizing tour, but we took an afternoon off or an evening, and we saw The Student Prince. And that's where that that song comes from, The Student Prince. And a very beautiful uh, movie. And that song was, of course, my favorite song with uh, uh, Mario singing that song. It wasn't Mario Hernandez, but uh, uh, the other Mario. And uh, anyway, uh, it was a very beautiful thing, and I kind of adopted that as a theme and tried to in my life. And I certainly don't do that perfectly, but all of you ought to adopt that as one of your themes. I'll walk with God. 
anyway were to do that, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me, drinking into these things, trying to walk with God, talk with God, walk with Christ who is God, and talk with Christ and commune with Him and have Him living His same life in you that He did live in the human flesh. You know, the Protestant world has this whole wrong concept. They just think that you just believe in Christ and have faith and just love Jesus. That is their version of Jesus, which is the wrong one. And then if you do that, you just float off to heaven with nothing to do. Whereas the Bible says, no, you surrender your life totally to God to let Him live His life in you. Real repentance involves that. And so Christ then lives His life in you through the Holy Spirit. And you ought to think in your own mind, this is not my life. This is not my life. My body, my hands, my feet belong to God. And the young people who get into illicit sex or drinking and drugs ought to think, well, my body and my sex organs don't belong to me. They belong to Jesus Christ. They are His they don't belong to me. I can't use them in some rotten, scummy way. They belong to Him. And my hands and my mind that thinks about buying the cigarette or drugs or drinking too much or whatever, my body belongs to Christ. It's not my body. I have no right to defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. I have given my life to God. I've given my body to God. I've given my sex organs to God. I've given my mind to God because that's where it starts. Your desire for too much drink or drugs or illicit sex, it all starts right here. That's why you have to do what? Bring every thought. That's what it says. Bring every thought into captivity to Christ. So we've got to have Christ living in us. He will live because of me, Jesus said, if you drink in of Him. Down in verse uh, 65, no, I'm sorry, 63 Jesus continued, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. No, you can make all the money in the world and be terribly miserable. Most of you read a number of books. I've read, uh, made it a hobby of reading biographies or autobiographies uh, of great men uh, through the years. And I was reading this one biography of this great oil man, uh, Getty, and uh, how he was the wealthiest man in the world at one time. And yet he said he would give every dime he had or every dollar he said for one good marriage. He had a whole bunch of different concubines and some failed marriages as well. That didn't make him happy. He didn't really have one woman that he genuinely loved and cherished and became one with not just physically but mentally and emotionally to share his whole life with. And so he was miserable that he had all this money. And he just lusted after money. He had a lot of amusing things in the book. He had this great big estate all over the United States, different buildings, but they had this big estate just outside London, England. I forget the name of it. But he had a lot of wealthy people and businessmen coming there. And because they were successful business people, they were on the phone quite a bit making deals. So he literally installed a pay phone everywhere. <laughs> so his guests had to pay they had to use a payphone in his house, and he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which would have been a few billion dollars in today's money. But he was so tight thinking about making more money, he put some payphones in his house so his guests had to pay money to use the phone. That's the way these guys are. Uh, you know, I remember Mr. Armstrong talking about uh, 
Hewlett C. Merritt. Some of you older brethren have seen the college envoys or a number of you may have been to Pasadena to see the campus. And remember, you have the uh, library building, and the, which was the main college building at first, and then next was uh, Del Mar, and then uh, you had, uh, uh, no, first you had uh, uh, Mayfair, and then Terrace Villa, and then you had uh, the uh, Ambassador Hall, which had been Hewlett C. Merritt's own home. You've seen the pictures, some of you, of the steps going up and up and up. At the top of the steps was this big building. That was Hewlett C. Merritt's personal residence. And, of course, he he constantly had his mind on money. And I he gypped me and some other students out of money when we helped him paint houses around there and wouldn't pay us. And finally, Mr. Armstrong said, well, just get the money from Vern. He was the business manager, and the work was always running out of money in those days, so we didn't do that. We just had to eat it, so to speak. But his assistant told me, he says, driving around town, he says, Mr. Merritt will see a building. He says, who owns that building? He'll see a vacant lot. He says, who owns all the time he's thinking? The money machine's clicking in his mind all day long. How can I make money here? How can I make money there? That's all he thought about. And this guy who worked for him could see that. That was his God. That was his God. But he died very miserably because one of his sons committed suicide right on those front steps. And one of his other children, I think, had some terrible mental breakdown. And he died a very broken man. He told Mr. Armstrong, he said, Armstrong, you'll never get my property. Oh, yeah, we got it all, <laughs> even including the great big, uh, not great big, but beautiful leather uh, dining uh, table he had in the private dining room and the expensive uh, hand-wrought uh, uh, leather chairs around it that we got for practically nothing because we bought them about a year after he died at an auction, and they were just virtually giving some of this stuff away. He didn't understand. He's dead and was dead. And it's all kind of given away. It didn't do him any good at all. So we've got to seek first God's kingdom and walk with God, talk with God, and we will have eternal life if we do that and have Christ living in us. Anyway, he said, If the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. These are spiritual principles. These words are spirit. They're a revelation from the mind of the Creator. The one who puts the sun and the moon and the stars up in the sky speaks to us through these words in this book. And if you can more fully grasp that, brethren, I know the world makes fun of that. I understand the educated people of this world make fun of religion in general. They sometimes go, but they don't believe it. I know that when I was first over in Europe, and seeing the different churches, we noticed that in these big Catholic churches, nearly always it was the women in there, and even on Sunday. And I was going in this great big uh, cathedral over there one time, a Protestant uh, cathedral, and I think I've told you this story over in Boston, on the east coast of Great Britain, the original Boston, and walking around just seeing this big building. It was just before I had a little campaign over there that evening, and I encountered the rector or whatever he was called, and he happened to be there and came out, can I help you? And he was a friendly. He just knew I was looking around, and, and uh, I asked him, I said, well, this is really a, a big building. I said, how many people do you, how many will this building seat? He said, about 2,200, 2,200. And I said, well, how many are here normally on a Sunday? And uh, I, 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 I'm afraid that would be the answer, and he immediately kind of looked down. He looked sad. <laughs> he said, oh, 50 or 70. Oh, yeah, 2,000. I said, mainly women. He says, yeah, yeah, mainly older women. 
And they're the ones that are security conscious. The men thought, we don't need God, and they'd all dropped away. It was just older women who came to church, and that was it. The young, healthy men think they can take care of themselves, and the businessmen are out making more money, and God seems like an odd thing to them, and partly because there's been this false religion out there. And God does seem odd when you think about all the Catholics butchering each other, and the Protestants, and even in the Civil War, the Methodists in the North, and the Baptists in the North, and North killing the Protestants in the South, and all the things that have happened. All of this stuff comes out about all these ministers in the world and their way of life. People get cynical. Where is God in all of this? Well, He isn't. He's not in it, but He's allowing mankind to go His own way for 6,000 years. But the true God, His Word makes sense. It works. Every bit of it works when you put it into action. And I guess the biggest thing outsiders can prove, and any of you new people, is as we tell you, the prophecies of the Bible. These things are starting to happen one right after the other, just as Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote way back in the 1940s and 50s. And as I heard when I first came to Ambassador College, and now a lot of them are all, have already happened, and others are underway. Massive things, not just little things, big things affecting the major nations of the world. They are happening. God is alive. And the exact thing God put in the Bible is what is taking place. The true God. And so we need to realize that this book is inspired. And if we feed on it, we have Christ in us. He said down in 60, verse 65, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. God is not trying to save everybody now. That's why everyone, everyone in the country ought to be here. I mean, in, in the city, or we ought to have the whole... Memorial Hall and all the other halls all over Charlotte filled. We will. I don't say we, but Christ will when He comes back again. Every church, every building that's set apart will be filled with God's people, you know, at that time. And I think that time will be within the next 12 to 25 years or less. And then the church of God will be all over the earth and the knowledge of God will be all over the earth as the ocean beds are full of water. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. We've had people fall away from us and people say, Oh my, well, boy, Jesus Christ himself did. Did they all follow Christ? All the people who heard him? No, they killed him. Crucify him, crucify him, they began to yell when the Jewish rabbis stirred them up. And they finally killed him instead. So we have to understand that many walked back. And then Jesus said to the twelve, the twelve apostles, Do you also want to go away? Then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And not because we're good, because we're no better than others. I was no better than my friends in high school at all. I've told you I was in a high school of about 1,250 students, just the upper three grades if we'd had all four grades. We had the junior high, senior high system, but it would have been more like 1,600 or 2,000 or whatever. But it was a fair-sized senior high school, and I had 25 close friends. Was I better than them? No, and not a bit. I was just average. I went right along with most of the stuff they did. I was a little better that I drank a lot less, and I didn't smoke at all because my vanity was running the mile and getting into sports, which is good. That helped me from doing some of that stupid stuff they did. But otherwise, I cussed and told dirty stories and got fights and evil and and every other rotten thing, and I was no better than they were. 
God has called us. He's opened our minds for some reason, not that we're better. You have the words of eternal life. And we have those words, not because we're better, but because God has called us. So if He's really calling you in this room, respond to that call. Profoundly appreciate it. You're one of the very few people on earth that really understand. And we're not telling you to read or to believe every word that we write or every word Mr. Armstrong wrote because it was not directly inspired at all like the Bible is at all, as he said. The Bible, this is what is directly inspired word by word. And his articles and booklets and our sermons and booklets are based on the Bible. And they're like a sermon in print. They're not perfect, but as you check it out in the Bible and prove it, they can be very helpful. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So anyway, we need to have a profound feeling about this book and about actually having the Christ of the Bible live his life within us. Here's another aspect of Christianity we need to think about, brethren. Mr. Armstrong said, people's spiritual life and spiritual strength nearly always reflect the degree to which their heart is in God's work. And if Christ lives His life in you, why has God called you and me now? Again, Mr. Armstrong said that. You older, I know Mrs. Murray will remember that, and many of you older brethren, Mrs. Pardeen and others, have heard him say that. He calls us now, not just for our personal salvation. He could do that in, in the tomorrow's world or in the great white throne judgment coming later. He calls us now to help do His work. Two reasons, to help do His work now and then to be the people of God that Christ is preparing through His church and through His ministry to be those kings and priests under Christ in tomorrow's world after Christ comes back again. That's why He's called us now. So back in John, if you turn back there, back in John uh, chapter 4, uh, Jesus had just talked to this Samaritan woman and asked a, dr a drink of her, and he hadn't eaten anything when the disciples came back, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, John 4, verse 31, Rabbi, eat. John 4, verse 32 now, Jesus said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. He always spoke in a way they couldn't understand. He would have spiritual things that they didn't get. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Again, they were just carnal. They thought it must mean someone gave him a sandwich real quick or something. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was Jesus' source of, of being. That was his reason for being, I should say. I think Mr. Apartian taught me to pronounce it correctly, raison de terre. His reason for being was to do God's work. So he said, that's what gives me strength. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. There were people all over there in Israel at that time who God may have been calling and they were ready to be harvested and he told the disciples, you better go out and be doing that. Put your heart in that. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So it says, if you reap and you do your part, you will receive wages for eternal life, you see. And uh, this is very important. You receive fruit for eternal life. 
if that is your wage for doing your part in God's work. And God will bless you forever and ever to the degree you try to help others, serve others, take part directly or indirectly in getting God's message out and preparing the way for the kingdom of God in every way you possibly can. And God wants all of us to be deeply involved in that. And that should be like Christ, if we follow Christ, our reason for being. Is my reason for being uh, just to eat and drink and, and go to bed or make more money or something? No. My reason for being is to get up, come over here, do God's work, write articles, preach sermons. And, of course, I can do that a little easier than you because I'm full-time in it. You know what I mean. But when you're home, you ought to be thinking about that, too. How can I pray for others, pray for the work, and encourage people, write others, make calls to encourage people, be an example, send in tithes and generous offerings according to my means, and do everything I can to get the work of God going so more people can know the truth and have part in it. All of us ought to do that as one of our main reasons for being, because that's one reason God has called us now to help produce fruit in that way. Turn back to chapter 15 now, if you would, brethren. John, at this point, chapter 15, and let's begin in verse 1. John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, so you've got to bring forth fruit, not just in your life by changing, that's wonderful, but helping others, helping others get involved. He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Why has God allowed this stroke to come upon me? Well, I was 78 years old. I wasn't 18 or something, so it wasn't unusual. But on the other hand, I know God allowed it. And I'm sure God allowed it to kind of shake me up and get me even closer, studying, praying, meditating, so I could serve you more and maybe overcome some of the problems that I may have had. My wife, my wife says the problems you may have had, all, <laughs> all the problems I did have. And I'm, I don't want you to think I was out doing some murdering people or something, but I wasn't. But I had human nature, as we all do. He prunes each one of us. He prunes each one of us so we can do better. So when something, quote, bad, end quote, happens to you, don't think this is the end. Don't think God has given up on me. Think God may be pruning me. It doesn't say he's pruning you because you're evil. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, he might remove you completely if you don't bear fruit at all. But every branch that bears fruit, you may be bearing some fruit, but he may want you to bear more fruit, see, more fruit. So he prunes you. He knocks off the rough edges. He shakes you up. So you could get even more close to God and more heartily involved in His perfect will that it may bear more fruit. And of course, you know the Scripture back in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, 6 I think it is, where God rebukes and chastens every son He hates. No, He rebukes and chastens every son He loves. He does it because He loves us. He shakes us up. He helps us get reoriented. He stirs us up with these trials that come along. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. As the song said, walk with God. That's what that song means. Walk with God. Walk with Christ. 
Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, you see, you can't do it of yourself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You've got to abide in Christ. You've got to walk with Christ and Christ must walk with you and live in you. And then through Him living in you, the more fruit you will produce more and more because He lives in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in Him. Christ living in us bears much fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And when branches are burned in fire, they don't jump and scream around forever and ever in burning hell. They're just burned up. And that's the way it is in the lake of fire. This doesn't prove all that. We have so many scriptures that show that. But the wages of sin is death, not eternal life in the lake of fire or in ever-burning fire. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and I in you, or if you abide in me, excuse me, and my words, say the words of this book, abide in you because you're feeding on Christ, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. Why? Because you will be asking according to God's will and you will be basically doing God's will, not perfectly, None of us has done it perfectly. I never have and you never will in this life. But overall, we're going that direction. Christ is living His life more and more in us as each year of our spiritual life goes by. So as that happens, you're basically serving God, obeying Him, and then you're asking according to this book. Then He hears you and you'll have these answers to your prayer. It shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, verse 8 that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. God wants us to bear much fruit. So the degree we have Christ living in us, the more fruit we will bear, the more impact we will have, the better we can serve God and God's people. So we want to deeply understand that. Remember, I've mentioned this term before, the false paradigm of Protestantism, the false paradigm of Protestantism. They think that if you just give your heart to the Lord, which is a sentimental thing, you don't really change very much. You just get sentimental about the person of Jesus, and then you sort of are nice and come to Sunday school and church, which I did for 19 years in the Methodist church. You're not really awful. Then you'll go to heaven, and you have nothing to do when you get there. So you don't really have to get too excited because you have nothing to do anyway. That whole thing plus all the other stuff is just a false paradigm, a false structure a false model of Christianity. The word paradigm means structure. It means model. The real model, of course, is what God tells us from one end of the Bible of the, to the other, that you're to have God live His life in you, that you're to keep God's law, that God's holy law is perfect. This law saves your soul. It says things like that in the Old Testament. The New Testament expands it, magnifies it, so you have to keep the spirit of the law, not just the letter, although that does not do away with the letter. And Christ lives in you through the Holy Spirit. So you have the right kind of character and even the right motives so you can live forever in God's kingdom. But then you don't just live forever. You produce fruit. 
You are looking forward to doing what? Going up to heaven and sitting on a chair, praying a harp, doing nothing? No, you're preparing to give, to help, to serve, to be involved in God's work today so that you can be involved in God's work in a few years as we have explained to you over and over as back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. Revelation 2:26. He who overcomes... You overcome your human nature. You overcome the world. You overcome Satan who's trying to distress you and distract you and pull you away. And keeps my works, the way of life, until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. That's your calling to be kings and priests under Jesus Christ throughout the whole millennium and bring peace to the earth. He shall rule them. You see, what? sitting sidewise on a donkey in a long robe and looking real sweet all the time. No, he's to rule them with a rod of iron. Christ will not come back nicey-nice. He'll come back pouring out plagues on the earth. He'll shake them to the depths of their being until they really do repent and come to him. I will give them power. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the potter's vessels shall be broken in pieces as I also... Christ also had received from his Father to do that same thing. He'll give that job to us to rule the nations. And over in chapter 5, Revelation 5 and verse 9, the saints sang a new song saying, so here's the song of the saints talking about Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you, Christ, were slain. He's been our Savior to reconcile us to God and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign, we shall rule on the earth. That's the paradigm that God has for us, to prepare not to go off to heaven with nothing to do, but to be literal kings and priests in a coming kingdom or government to be set up of spirit beings under Christ. Most of you know, but recite it for the newer brethren. You can all look it up and find it in our various booklets and articles. You have God the Father, and under God is Jesus Christ, who's put over everything. And then under Christ, as He comes back to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, you find, of course, no doubt, Moses and, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all doing various top jobs, advisors, and over a cabinet or whatever, however God structures that. But over Israel directly, which is often used as a type of the whole rest of the world for the Gentiles, he has who? Right under Christ. King David. It's in, in uh, uh, Revelation. I mean, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 37. And also back in Ezekiel chapter 34 and elsewhere. King David of Israel will be literally over the all 12 tribes or nations of Israel. King David. Under King David is, of course, the 12 apostles. And they will be each one over an individual tribe. And it's back in Luke uh, chapter 22. Uh, forget the verses, but Christ showed that the, the apostles would be each one over a tribe of Israel. So you've got God the Father, then Christ directly over the world. Then you've got various top other leaders. But then directly over Israel is King David. And under King David is the 12 apostles over individual nations ruling each one a nation. And under them would be some of us ruling individual provinces or cities or counties or whatever they're called. We don't know the title that will be given. In fact, it will be a new language. It won't be our language anyway. 
But different ones of us will be over five cities or ten cities or have various cabinet jobs right at headquarters at Jerusalem. And God makes that plain. It will be a structured government, a literal government on this earth. You're preparing to have part in a government. So Christ wants you to learn to function that way now as a Christian, to think I'm part of God's work. My job is to build God's work. My job is to be responsive to Jesus Christ and His leadership. My job is to respond to Him, to serve Him, to honor Him. And my job is to prepare for a real responsibility so that I don't just believe in an empty sentimental Jesus, but the living head of the church of God, the coming King and ruler of the universe, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is my Savior, my high priest at God's right hand, my living head, and my coming King. And so we need to think of all those things as we think about Christ and what He did for us and what He is planning for us. Turn back now, if you would, brethren, to Revelation. I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians at this point, And I'm going to turn here to uh, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians. And let's turn to chapter 12. In verse 12, breaking into the thoughts here, he says, For as the body, that is our human body, is one and has many members, but all members of the one body being one or many are one body. In other words, all your fingers and toes and your hands and feet and eyes and ears, all one body. It's supposed to work together. If the man, Brian says, do this, then the hand is supposed to do this and so on. It all works together. So we are in Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. We're to have one Spirit, one attitude, one basic approach. For in fact the body is not one member, the true body of Christ, the true church of God, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Well, some of our older people in the church of God can't even come to the Passover, and some cannot even come to the Feast of Tabernacles. They ask to send them a tape, you know. They stay home, and uh, if they say they're keeping the feast with us, we can count them as the, as the ones uh, who are with us in that way, and that's good because they're old and they can't do it. Are they not of the body? No, they're very much of the body. Some of those older widows or other people send in tithes and offerings regularly. They may write letters of encouragement to others and help them in various ways. And they may pray to God. And God describes Epaphras who cried out to God. Or was it Epaphroditus with his prayers all the time, earnest prayers. And how he served the brethren because of his prayers. And some of these older people do that with all their heart. They are very much part of the body, even though there may be a foot and not a mouth or an eye, or an ear. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If we were all a big ear, where would be the smelling? <laughs> you got to smell too. Verse 18, But now God has set the members. You see, overall, Christ is in charge. Some of you might say, well... Back under Mr. Armstrong, mistakes were made. Yes, there were some mistakes in people that were appointed, and there were some mistakes made in other ways, of course. And under my administration, in the 18 
18 and a third years we've been going in the Living Church of God, Global Living Church, we have made some mistakes. But overall, it's Christ's guidance, and you know what, overall, by the fruits. In other words, the fruits of the worldwide Church of God were a great deal of growth until one young man got out of hand somewhat toward the end there. And when his saints came out, just like you throw a big rock in a small pond and the waves go out in every direction, then you begin to have a lot of problems toward the end. But God blessed that work, as Mr. Armstrong said, for about 35 years with approximately 30% increase in income. Very greatly blessed. That was the Philadelphia era as God describes it, that was to go through the open doors. And boy, they did. Tremendous opportunities to preach the gospel. And so we have started out in a shattered church after Mr. Armstrong's death where people didn't trust each other anymore and didn't trust the ministry. We've had to slowly put things back together again and try to rebuild that trust. But at any rate, Christ is guiding it overall, and He is overall the head of the church Because God has set the members, each one of them, in the body. He sets each one of you overall. If you're converted, you know, you can all take your life and go somewhere else. You have that right. You can go out of the church or you can whatever. But He sets you in the body as just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? And so on. He says over here in verse 27... Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. God has appointed. See, God has set Christ, as we'll see, as the living head of the church. He's the active head, and he appoints certain ones individually into different offices. I think he appointed Mr. Herbert Armstrong as an apostle. I'm not the one that said that. Herman Hay was the one who announced that at the Feast of Tabernacles in 1952 up in uh, Sigler Springs, Oregon. He said, some of you older brethren have thought Herbert Armstrong is a prophet. And Mr. Armstrong was sitting in the front row and I watched him. I enjoyed seeing his reaction to things. He kind of went like this. I thought he's going to come up and throw Herman off that stage. <laughs> and then he said, he's not a prophet. You know, and uh, he said, Herbert Armstrong is an apostle. And then Mr. Armstrong jumped forward again like he was going to get up and then he kind of eased back and started to think and listen and afterward, he got up and came up. He said, well, brethren, I, I was kind of startled at what, what Dr. Hayes said because I didn't necessarily under, ever hear that before. But he said, I'm going to think about it and pray about it. I hope all of us do and to think about it. But he said, don't go around calling me an apostle. The people will think we're nuts. And, uh, but through the years, uh, the work grew and grew and grew. And he was used by God to raise up a whole era of the church of God. And the fruits were there because he did have not only a big work, a powerful work, but unusual miracles. Unusual miracles. I've had people healed under my prayers, and so has Mr. Ames, and so has Dr. Vanell, and just not to go on, but all of us ministers have had people healed. But Mr. Armstrong had dozens and scores of people healed. And I've told you about the lady that I think Raymond and I met on the tour who had her arm withered just like a rope. And after she sent in to the, for an anointed cloth for Mr. Armstrong, it just grew right out. I've told you that story, many other things like that. God used him to perform unusual miracles. Those are some of the signs of an apostle. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? 
They all have the gifts of healings. Notice it's healings, different ways of healing, aspects of healings. Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Notice tongues is one of the least things, although it's something I think we will have. Mr. Bruce Tyler mentioned that to me recently, and uh, I got to think, well, that's right. We don't want to put that down just because the Pentecostals misuse it, you know, and do it in a wrong way. We probably will have a genuine supernatural gift of speaking in a foreign language before the work is all over. He was thinking about it because he was going into China and into India and places like that where they have these different dialects and all that kind of thing. We may need those far more in the future. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. That is the way of perfect love, perfect love toward God and perfect love toward man. So the body of Christ is one body, one team. God is appointing people in a a government structure as a team that he can use in this life to do his work and to carry right on over and do the work of God in tomorrow's world over nations, over states, over counties, over cities, or whatever the title will be in the new language that God will give us. He's preparing a team of responsive individuals. Notice now, back in Colossians chapter 1, turn to Colossians, if you would, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 12. Here, I'm beginning a lot of these in verse 12. It's kind of interesting. Paul wrote many things hard to be understood, Peter said. So I don't read all of Paul's verses. They're great long verses. Some of them are almost a third of a page long. But breaking in here in verse 12, Colossians 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, the Father we thank, who has qualified us. We're not qualified by ourselves. He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What is that inheritance? We're to inherit the world and later probably the entire universe. And we're to be kings and priests and governors and leaders in a whole governmental structure all over this earth and later perhaps even on other planets. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, from Satan, and translated us. He's translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, the kingdom of Christ. Is that wrong? No. The kingdom of God is normally used, but the kingdom of Christ is God, so it's also the kingdom of Christ. He will be the king of kings and the king of that kingdom. He's translated us. So we're begotten sons of God, And we're begotten kings in the kingdom already in the sense that we're being prepared for that. He has delivered us and given us this in whom we have redemption through His blood. And as we approach the Passover service and take the broken bread, brethren, which pictures the broken body of Christ for our healing, and we take the red wine picturing Christ's red blood that He poured out, giving His life because the wages of sin is death. And he gave his life through that blood to reconcile us to God. We should think about that. These verses are often used by the Protestants. And sometimes we avoid them because that's all the Protestants talk about. But we don't want to avoid them too much. They're part of the Bible too. We do need to have a proper sentiment about what Jesus Christ did for us. He redeemed us through his blood and gave us the forgiveness of sins. We are the church of the forgiven He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created, 
Christ is the one who said, Let there be light, and there was light. He made man and woman in His image. He made us, and later He came and died for us. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him, through Christ, and for Him, because He's to be the King over the whole earth under, under God the Father. And He, Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He, Christ, is, not was, but is right now the head. He is the living head of the body, the church. Who's the head of the church? Not Herbert Armstrong, not Roderick Meredith, not Mr. Ames, nobody else. Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who was first born from the dead. How are you born again? Not by some sentimental feeling and a tent meeting. You're born by a resurrection from the dead. That's how you're born again. That in all things he may have the preeminence. So Christ is our living head and he's the head over all principality and power and everything that is. And he's the living head. Is he doing his job? Well, we have to realize, yes, he is. He is our, he is our head. He's in charge. And constantly think about that. Turning back to Ephesians now, if you would. Turn to the book of Ephesians at this point, brethren. And I want to read beginning in Ephesians chapter 1 and break into the thought there in verse 19. It talks about the mighty power of Christ, or God, which He worked in Christ, verse 20, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies above all principality and power and might. Think about where Christ is right now. I don't think our minds can fully grasp when you think about Christ sitting at the throne of a glorious being whose body literally emanates almost like a, a, an atomic furnace, heat and power and radiance coming out. And Christ does too. And His own face shines like the sun in full strength. His voice booms across the earth like the sound of rolling thunder and all those things and surrounded by the four living creatures and then the 24 elders bowing down and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty and the beautiful sea of glass, luminous and glory everywhere, over 100 million. It shows that in Revelation, if you read it carefully, over 100 million angels around and angelic choirs and all kinds of glory around him. That's where he is, the one who runs the universe, but the one who is our father and the one who is our living head, Jesus Christ, and our active savior. So he has been given principality and might and every name he's over that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. Every name, in other words, every title, every authority. And he put, God put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. As I've said back in Worldwide, and I say again now, Christ is the head of the church overall. Christ is the head of church administration. Does Dr. Manel make any mistakes? Yes, of course he makes some mistakes. He's not perfect. Christ is the head over the finance department. Do we make any mistakes here? Once in a while we do. Is Christ as the head of the editorial and media department? Does Mr. Ames make many mistakes? Yes, he makes mistakes. He's human. 
Do I make mistakes? Yes, I make hundreds of them. But Christ has not allowed us to make any terrible mistakes that would wreck the work. Otherwise, He is totally in charge and He would remove us if we did that. I've heard Mr. Armstrong say 10 or 15 or 25 times over the years, he said, Brethren, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. But he said, Christ has never permitted me to make a mistake that would be big enough to destroy the whole work. And that's true. Christ is the head of the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he wants to have that deep respect for the church of God and for the leadership. And if I should die today or tomorrow or any time, I would hope and pray, and I mean this, and my wife knows that because she would have to carry on in our family, I would hope that my family and all of us would transfer that same respect that any of you have shown me to Mr. Ames and perhaps even more so for the office. Not because of the person in the office, but because of the office. Because Christ is the living head of the church. And know that He's going to guide, He's going to lead, He's going to orchestrate. And if you see the fruits of a man that are not perfect, because none of us will ever be perfect, but you see if that man and the leadership as a whole, such as Mr. Ames and Dr. Manel and I and our other leaders, are preaching the full truth of God, not perfectly, but preaching it fully, probably more than anyone else on earth, fully preaching the truth, not watering things down, And secondly, doing the work of God, getting the message out properly, and again, not perfectly, but with our hearts. And thirdly, practicing the government of God, the right form of government, again, not perfectly, but carrying on a hierarchical government based on faith that Christ sets people where they belong and that Christ guides those under Him. So we have that faith in Christ. It's not faith in man. It should not be faith in man because man is fallible. But Christ is infallible, and He will not allow any horrible thing to happen. Otherwise, He will remove the man in the office. So anyway, we want to have that concept and be part of Christ's team. Christ has died for us. He's our Savior, but He's also our living head. He is now working with us, fashioning and molding us, and developing a wonderful team. And that's the thing we should understand, that we're part of that team. And Christ is the living head of the church, the body. And He's using each of us as a tool, and He's using the church totally, overall, as a tool to do His work, to get His message out to the world. For God is building a family, a genuine, responsive team, to serve Him and do His work over the entire earth, in tomorrow's world. And we're going to be doing it today and in tomorrow's world even more as the team under Christ. Later, perhaps, we will be doing that work over the whole universe. Christ has got to know where we stand. Will we really do what He says? Will we really do be a responsive member of His team? How can He put us over Pluto or Saturn or Alpha Centauri or one of these stars way out there saying, well... This guy is a nice guy, but I'll tell him to do this and he'll do something else or whatever it is. I can't be sure he'll do what I say. So anyway, you've got to think about that in your own life. All of us. I do too. Every one of us. We're being prepared for that. Notice now, brethren, if you would, back in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, the uh, uh, second chapter. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. 
I normally pick up later on in verse 5, but let's begin in verse 1 this time. Therefore, Paul writes, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We've got to give heed to the Bible. We've got to feed on the Bible. We need to remember these sermons and let them burn right into our brains so we can act upon them. Give earnest heed, lest we drift away. Sometimes you don't just suddenly bolt away. You drift away from the truth. You kind of just suddenly begin to be kind of turned off and weak and you study the Bible less and pretty soon you're not praying very much and then you're getting cynical or sarcastic or worldly and watching more TV and you just drift slowly, imperceptibly away from God. Don't let that happen. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. They had to be lashed with whips for certain things or fined for money or sometimes it was a death penalty for murder or rape or a serious transgression. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, if God backed up that system back then, how much more will He back it up today in the spiritual things he's trying to teach us, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And God has done that even in our age. And I've told you about a number that have been healed through my prayers, and Mr. Ames could tell the same, and I know all of our ministers I bet Mr. League has had a whole bunch of healings out in the churches where he's been because he's been in the ministry so long. And we prayed for people and we have seen people supernaturally healed. For he's not put the world to come of which we speak in the subjection to angels. So God is not putting that world under angels, brethren. They're to help us. We're to be over those angels in a few years. We have a far greater potential but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man? Here he's, of course, paraphrasing Psalm uh, chapter 8, as you know. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, a little lower, or for a little while lower, it may be translated. You crowned him with glory and honor. Has God given His glory and honor now? Not very much, but in His plan. It's just as good as done. As it says back in Romans 4, verse 17, God calls those things which were, uh, which are, as though they were not. He sometimes says it as, as though it's done. God said to Abraham, as he's Paul saying there, I have made you a father of many nations. Well, if Abraham were carnal or sarcastic, he could look, okay, where are they, God? Come on, where are they? Abraham didn't say that. Those many nations did not appear until hundreds of years later. But they began to appear, in a small sense, through Abraham's great-grandsons. He had his son Isaac, and then he had his grandson Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and then they began to multiply. But all that happened finally after Abraham died, for the nations began to appear and grow great. I have made you. It's just as good as done. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all in subjection under his 
who man's man's feet, our feet in his plan were created to rule the universe someday. For in that he put all in subjection under him. And here, of course, the Greek word uh, is, I think it's taponta, if I'm pronouncing that. But anyway, it means everything, the whole universe. He left nothing that is not put under him. But we do not yet see all things under him. Certainly everything is not under us now. We have a human body and we die and we see, you know, when we get sick and hurt, we feel very helpless. We're not over all things now at all. We're learning lessons. God has put us all here to teach us humility, to teach us how much we need God and to teach us lessons for all eternity. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with uh little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Christ was put there to, to give his life for all of us. For it was fitting for him, Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, because Christ, God made all things through Christ, in bringing many sons to glory. He's going to bring eventually, apparently, billions Billions of human beings to glory. God is reproducing Himself. God wants billions of human beings. He wants most people, obviously, to be saved if they're just willing and to be in His kingdom and His family and help Him later rule, apparently, the entire universe eventually. So He's made it possible to bring many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ had to go through a lot of horrible sufferings and we do too along the way. I've had terrible pain and things come on me at times in the past. I don't have any pain, by the way, in this uh, stroke. It seems like God has protected me from everything except the stroke. All these young men and women in the office get these uh, uh, flus and viruses and all the bad things. Uh, here, uh, Don Matherly, he eats too much ice cream and he gets sick or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I don't get sick at all. And it's amazing. Ever since the stroke, I think God says, well, Meredith has had enough trouble with the stroke. I'll leave him free from everything else. So I don't want to brag that I may get it tomorrow. But so far for two and a half years, he hasn't let me fall or get hurt or do anything for all that time. But anyway, he Christ went through terrible sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In his plan... God considers us brothers. Christ considers us full brothers. You know, some of you have a brother. I never had a brother, but I, I had two sisters. And uh, But if I had a brother, he would be the same as I am. And my sisters are the same as I am too. Just full human beings, just as I am. I will say, I will declare your name to my brethren. So if we're brothers of Christ, we will be on the same level of existence. That's my point. We're going to be full sons of God. Not lesser beings way down there like cows or horses or chickens or something. We will be full members of the God family. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise to you. So Christ goes through this for us. And we are being tried and tested and rebuked and chastened and worked with and fashioned and molded so we can be full sons of God and be in a government, a kingdom, a family grown great that God knows will be responsive to Him, 
to be in peace and unity throughout all eternity and to help Him rule the entire universe. There later may be recreations on other planets, other human beings, or other types of beings we will work with under the direction of Jesus Christ. Under the direction. But as we respond now, we're part of a team now, we understand that is one of the reasons we're called now to be part of God's work, part of God's team now to learn to do that throughout all eternity in the very family of God. Let's uh, turn now back to Psalm 33, if you would. And I have quoted this a number of times recently. It's becoming one of my favorite verses. It didn't used to be, but as I got to studying it and meditating on it, uh, I've just had a very deep feeling for this psalm. Psalm 33, I won't read it all, but just a couple of verses here. Psalm 33 and verse 13. The eternal God, the ever-living one, Yahweh, looks down from heaven as He's looking on us here and now in this hall right today. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of His habitation, He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. And brethren, God is working with you. He's working with me. He's considering our thoughts, our attitudes, and He is working with each one of us, saying, well, if George Smith over here is cynical and Mary Jones has this wrong attitude going her mind, I'm going to have to work with her and work with Him and fashion and mold them so when I give them a spirit body, a spirit body to live forever, they will really think like I think. They will be like I am. They will respond to me. They will respond to Christ, my Son. They will be part of that perfect team, that body of Christ forever, the family of God grown great, and a coming kingdom or government to rule the earth, and as I say, perhaps, and probably the entire universe. So God is fashioning us, teaching each of us lessons in many different ways as He calls us. So I think it's good as you get up. I try to do this, and I certainly don't do it perfectly by any means or anything else perfectly. But as I pray to God, I have a place on the second floor where I can look out at the sky and see the trees and the creation around. And I really appreciate it. My wife was even having considering having us to live and move to a different house. And I talked her out of that. I said, no, I want to stay right here. It's so much trouble to move, you know. And it cost us a lot of money to sell the house, to fix it up, to pay the in and out real estate costs. And I want to, just like that place there, we have that beautiful backyard and big trees and, and uh, the second floor place to pray, one of the best places I've ever had. But at any rate, you look out and you think God is up there beyond that. He's on His throne in heaven and He's guiding us, teaching us. He is fashioning us and molding us. And you ought to say, Father in heaven, thank you for the lessons you're teaching me. Thank you for the lessons you're teaching all of us. Each of us has to have this part of our attitude knocked off. This part of our attitude changed. This part of our life changed. We have to change in here and here and try to become really like Jesus Christ more and more in everything we think and say and do. And as Mr. Lindley was singing in that beautiful song says, Think in your mind, I'll walk with God. I will walk with God. I will talk with God. I will give my life to God. I will really try to reflect Jesus Christ more in everything I do. That will honor the Christ who died for me. 
That will honor the Christ who shed His blood for me. That is the reason Christ shed His blood for me, that I could be reconciled to God and that I could have Christ living His life in me and bear His image forever. So I think we ought to really try to do that, brethren, more and more. And that should be our theme, one of our major themes, as the Passover approaches. Not just that Christ died to forgive our sins, but He died to reconcile us to God that we can fulfill the ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose for which we're alive, the ultimate purpose for which we're drawing breath, the ultimate purpose for our life, to become full sons of God and to be in His kingdom, in His family, and help Christ and help the Father rule the earth and bring absolute joy to the nations, the cities, the peoples of the earth, and tomorrow's world, and later throughout all the universe. That is ultimately why you and I were born.